to Lord willing. Father, we thank you that you love to disciple us. You don't want us to stay in one place. Uh, a non-moving target is easy to hit. You want us moving, growing. Your goal is to transform us continually into the image of your Son while on this earth. And Lord, I pray that us here at Riverbend would take that serious. This is your goal. This is what you've it's so what you plan from eternity past to save people and cause them to be like your son more and more and more in this present life. And I pray, Lord, that we would heed that. Lord, let us not be just hearers only. That's easy to do, Lord. We can just sit and listen. The Bible says to be doers, disciples, being discipled, moving forward, Lord. Lord, please help us with those idols and hindrances that easily trip us up, Lord, and cause us to neglect our growth in you. We thank you that you're a gracious and kind and loving God, and you have forgiven us of all of our sins. And so, Lord, may we get up and not sit on the side of this road in this race. May we get up and run, Lord. Let us run. Let us run with an intent to glorify you, Cause us to be imitators, those who share this great gospel through a life lived for you. Lord, we're so grateful for so many who have been through discipleship. Lord, they, may they be encouraged to others to continue in their walk. Lord, we think of those who have been discipled but can't be here. Lord, we have some who are suffering through illnesses, maybe to life's end. We pray that you would continue to show your mercy to them. Others have been through treatments. Others have been through a fall. And oh Lord, we ask that you would show your kindness and mercy to those suffering. Lord, many are watching online today. We pray that you would cause them to be encouraged and then if possible that they would be here to fellowship with us soon. We thank you for our missionaries, Lord. I'm so grateful to speak to them regularly. Please encourage those who are struggling. We particularly pray for the Molina family, Lord, who has lost their housing. We pray that you would provide soon, Lord housing for this faithful family. Lord, we ask all these things in your son's name because it is through him that we have gained access into your presence. Please hear our prayers, hear our preaching, hear our worship for your glory and certainly for our good. In Jesus' name, amen. Some people call certain sins gray areas or areas that they don't uh, know quite how to handle or have a verse to attach to something. I don't really like the term gray areas. I, I think the Lord's word is pretty clear on things. But there may be issues that we would say, please don't sin against your conscience. Maybe the Bible doesn't take a definitive stand on something. I jotted down a few things in my notes thinking out loudly. Um, uh, drinking, there's one. The Bible is very clear. Do not be drunk. Drunkenness is a godless sin. <laughs> I think we know that. And yet Paul tells Timothy, hey, have a little wine. We know the water filtration system was poor in the first century and caused many problems. And so we know that the Bible does not take a hard stand one way or another, but there is a conscience there. Does your, what does your conscience tell you to do? Don't sit against it. What about what to wear to church? That's an interesting one, isn't it? <laughs> oh, please don't dress like me or have my conscience. <laughs> I think it's very important that you... Honor the Lord in all that you do. 
We should all look in the mirror and say, Lord, can I honor you today in everything that I do? It's a conscience issue. Some people wear their best all week long because they have to. They're maybe in court or something where they have to put on their best. And then Sunday, they want to just to be comfortable to hear the word of God and worship. I understand that. Others, others of us, and this would probably be where I fall in, I, I like to wear my best on Sunday to the Lord. That's a conscience issue. Don't sin against your conscience. Other things might be your involvement with coworkers. What do I, how do I handle that? Lost people. How, how much relationship should I have with them? How do I have a relationship with them in order to share Jesus Christ with them, but not engage in some of the things that maybe our co-workers might engage in? How do I handle that? Don't sin against your conscience. Be a light in all situations. So these are some areas that, that the Bible may not have actual specific verses for. But in our text today, I want to make sure that Paul has made clear in the last 13 verses of areas that are not debatable. <laughs> and you can't say in these, well, I have a conscience issue here. Paul has done great work here to show in these verses that idolatry and immorality, the testing of God, grumbling and complaining, are gross sins against God. And he sent judgment on people who did that. And we read those stories, didn't we? And what's worst is sometimes people have taken this. This is what Paul's after with his church in Corinth. They've attached their liberties or their freedoms in their Christian faith to shut such blatant sins and felt they were justified in doing this. Now, be careful. Some of these sins are disguised in today's technology, but they're still blatant against God. But now, Paul, what he's going to do in these next nine verses is he can explain why these sins are especially offensive to God. It may not be a moral issue to eat some meat offered to an idol, depending on the situation, but it is a serious sin to engage in any form of idol worship that was so prevalent in the Corinth days, and Paul is going to nail that home. When we look at the context here as we work our way through this, we understand that some of the Corinthians had taken their freedoms too far. They'd taken it too far. There's an abuse of grace going on in this church, and Paul warns them once again of the evils of idolatry. And, and if you think I've been hitting this uh, hard, I, I'm in the text. I'm not preaching anything other than the text, but it is a problem today just like it was in Corinth church. Many... Many of the Corinthians, and I think it probably is true in our days, that they had social responsibilities and even families that were tied to these pagan functions. And they were struggling with how they were to be involved with it. And so Paul is going to sternly warn them not to, now this, here's the key, not to participate in false worship. Not to participate in it. And he's going to work really hard in these verses here to show the difference. And I plead with you this morning to let the Word of God and let the Spirit search your heart to see if idolatry has gained a foothold in any of these areas or anything else. Does, let me say this, is there competition in any way for the throne of your heart? Is there competition going on? Well, let me give you five points this morning. 
And my first one is very simple. Number one, beloved, run. Maybe you've seen videos and there is a guy walking across the street and a truck flips over and sliding right at him and he does not see it. And all of a sudden the caption or the voiceover says, run. <laughs> We've seen those, haven't we? I think this is what Paul is doing. This is the thought of scripture when it comes to sin. Hebrews chapter 12, verse 1 says, let us also lay aside every encumbrance, every encumbrance, and the sin which so, listen to this, easily entangles us. And let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. There's some strong words in that, right? Lay aside every encumbrance, every Thing, every area where sin just shackles you or just holds you back from obtaining what God wants out of you, what God desires out of you, finishing school that he's taking you through to make you more like Christ, what's restraining you there? And then he says it so easily entangles us. I like that wording because I think it's true, isn't it? Little things most of the time get us Christians. Maybe we're not running off, cheating on our spouse or or drunkenness or something like that. It's sometimes those things where attract our heart that, that take, take control of that heart and they become everything to us. And maybe even in that moment, and we get entangled with things that are not of God. And the last part of that verse is we don't run with endurance. We give up. Some of you are probably here today and you're sitting on the sideline in the race of faith. You know who you are. I don't. <laughs> you've given up. You're not running like God wants you to. If you've ever run a hard race and you fell, it's very hard to get up and get going again, isn't it? I pray that God will encourage you to get up and run. Paul certainly is aware of these sin struggles. He knows what believers go through. He understands the verses that Jesus was sympathetic high priest. He knows that, and yet his goal is to not let us, he wants to encourage us to not let idols slow us down. Verse 14 simply says this. Therefore, my beloved, run. Flee idolatry is the clear teaching. See, these verses here remind us that Paul's speaking to fellow believers who need reassurance. You can hear his pastoral care, can't you, in these verses. He's reminding these Corinthians, and the Word of God is reminding us that God loves us. And Paul loved these believers, didn't he? You see his desire to shepherd them from the pitfalls that, that, that plague Christians. Run! See, that's coming from love. That's coming from a desire as pastors study and preach the word of God to you. It's not because this is our job, because I have to have something to say on Sunday. We desire in our own life as well as in your lives that we run. We don't want to be a staggering church here that just kind of is making its way and hoping Jesus returns. We want to run. And so you hear this pastoral care, you hear the love he has for this church, even as difficult as they are, you hear this come out of this. I think Paul saw himself as an earthly spiritual father to the Corinthians. He loved his children, and he uses that term, look at that, my beloved. 
That's a term of intimacy, isn't it? My beloved sits here in the front row. It's a term of intimacy. But here it's used for a gathering of believers, people who know Jesus Christ or at least claim to know him. He calls them his beloved. He loved them. And he knew they were weak and he knew they were even self-deceived and he's calling them out of that. Run. Flee immorality. There's no hope for you to understand these next set of verses. There's no hope for you to understand what God has for you. If you're going to stay in immorality or if you're going to stay in idolatry, he tells you to run. But Paul, who is often uh, very candid and even has some spiritual sarcasm within his teaching, says in verse 15, I speak to the wise men, you judge what I say. See, Paul knows they struggle with immaturity. Chapter 3, verses 1 through 3, we see what he says about the church here. He says, And I, brethren, could not speak to you as spiritual men, but as men of flesh, as to infants in Christ. I gave you milk to drink, not solid food, for you were not able to receive it. Indeed, even now you're not able, for you are still fleshly. For since there is a jealous and strife among you, are you not fleshly? Are you not walking like mere men? See, Paul knew that they had great struggles. And yet he loved them. And in his kindness, he is asking them, look what he's doing. He's asking them in his kindness to listen carefully to God's word this morning. Don't be just a hearer of it. Be a doer of it. That's what he's after. And doubtlessly, Paul is dependent on the Spirit to awaken them as I am this morning. God's truth has to awaken you. The Spirit of God has to awaken you because idolatry creeps in quickly. Before describing these realities of adultery, excuse me, of idolatry, Paul commands them to flee. I keep saying the word run because that's the idea of the word. It's an imperative, but yet it's in a present continual tense. It, it means keep running. Not only run from those things, keep running from them. <laughs> Don't slow down because they're going to come and get you. Keep running to Jesus. So he's exhorting them. This gives the idea that even before I tell you of the dangers and the realities of idolatry, I'm warning you to get away from them. We used to teach our children when they were young, when mom and dad speak, obey first time, it'll save your life. There are a lot of things on the ranch, a bull may run you over, or a snake might bite you, and you have to yell and say, kids, and they need to jump. I was thinking of a funny story this morning of our third-born son. If you have a challenging child in here, you should meet my third-born son and how much he loves the Lord and his wife now. But he has challenging. I remember one morning we were out doing chores, and I would take the boys after the main big heavy chores were done. I'd bring them out, and, and they would help me with the chores around the re house closely and, and why mom got ready and got breakfast going and all the things she had going. And, and I remember on the, on the quad I had the two boys sitting on a hay bale, two older ones sitting on a hay bale, and I had Caleb, my third born, between my legs. And we had done a bunch of chores and fed a lot of the small animals and getting all that stuff done. And Last stop was at the corrals where I had some bulls that, that I were not in with the cows at that point and I was ready to feed them. And I remember pulling up in the, and the quad was in first gear and, and you know, it just has a lever that goes. And I stepped off it and I got a bale of hay and I remember right here hearing the quad leaf. <laughs> and my three-year-old 
stuck his thumb on the throttle and took off. <laughs> Two boys in the top flew off the back. And I was on a 100-yard dash because he was heading down a hill full of ice and snow and heading right for a fence with a drop-off right after it. He's frozen, scared to death, with his thumb pinned on the throttle, going as fast as he can. I dive, grab the back of it, but I can't stop it. He's going to take me through the fence and off the cliff, too. And I remember, oh, God. And I said, Caleb, put your hands up. And he put his hands up, and the quad went, and I stopped it right as we came to the fence. I'll never forget that story. First time obedience. Maybe save both of our lives. See, this is what God's word is about. Put your hands up. Listen. God's word has something to tell us. If you're, if you're going to remain in sin and refuse to leave it, it will be difficult to hear the clear and life-saving message of the word of God. If your heart is stubborn and hard, you'll end up spiritually deaf. You go, well, Scott, how do I beat this? Well, first start by listening to the word of God, the word of truth. Ask God to help you hear the word, then admit your sin, then confess sin, and then repent and turn from sin. That is the plan of God. That's how we get out of idolatry. You see, idolatry is worshiping something other than God or worshiping God not his way. Did you catch that? Idolatry is worshiping something other than God or not worshiping God his way. Major problem today, isn't it? To worship something other than God or to worship God in your own way is contrary to his word and it's extremely serious. And then again, it is an infectious sin as we see in Christian society today. It ultimately rejects the character of God, doesn't it? It elevates the fallen humanity that you know better than God knows. You reject the creator for your own view. The idolatry of living independent of God says that I don't need an all-sufficient, all-knowing, all-seeing, all-present God. I don't need him. I can do it myself. And you say, well, I don't believe that, but that's the way you act, isn't it? That's idolatry. See, idolatry forms quickly. Forms quickly in your life. And it finds, we'll find ourselves in, in worship of, of something uh, that's centered around ourselves or something that has captured our hearts and not our God and Savior. And here Paul is saying, he's commanding, heed this, flee from idolatry, run. And here's, here's the result of what happens. You rob God of his glory. That's what happens when we fall into idolatry. We rob him. I love Isaiah 42, 8. It says, I am the Lord. That is my name. That word name means that's my character. I am Yahweh. I am the all-inclusive one. I am, I am independent of all things. I need nothing. That is my character. I'm holy, just, perfect. And he says this, I will not give my glory to another. And yet, we will sometimes. 
We'll find something that we bow down, something that's more important to us in that moment or in that time of life than God. See, God designed all of mankind to worship. You can see it in their lives. They worship something. They're always after something. Man was designed to worship. That's the way God designed mankind. And even those who who deny the existence of God worship. It isn't hard to see that. Idolatry does not have to be a, a metal or a stone or wooden engraved image. That's not what it has to be. It can be an object. It can be an idea. It can be a philosophy. It can be a habit. It can be an occupation. It can be a gift. It can be a sport. It can be a, a mythical thing, right? It can even be supernatural beings, at least who parade around as one. And often Christians can find themselves involved in idolatry and are oblivious to the stranglehold that it has on our lives. Job said this, and this is a tremendous text in the latter part of uh, the book, Job 31, 24 and following. He says this, If I have put my confidence in gold and called fine gold my trust, if I have gloated because of my wealth, was great, and because of my hand had secured so much, if I had looked at the sun when it shone, or the moon going in in splendor, and my heart became secretly enticed, and my hand threw a kiss from my mouth, that too would have been an iniquity calling for judgment, for I would have denied God above. Job was super sensitive to things, wasn't he? He was sensitive to the the fact that his heart was easily or could be easily entangled. And he was trying to figure out why God had allowed such harsh trial into his life. And he was examining every area, his wealth, his his, uh, material things he had, the, the creation around him. Had he coveted any of those things? He was looking deeply for idolatry into his life and he called it iniquity if it was found. See, idolatry robs your joy, doesn't it? Not only does it rob the glory of God, but it robs your joy, doesn't it? You and I, when we repent of sins, it's most likely there's some kind of idolatry there, something we loved more than God at that moment, and it might have been just our opinion in an argument. And when we started to worship our opinion, at that moment we gave up our joy to try to battle for that opinion, didn't we? Idolatry robs your joy. And then it'll leave you with guilt. That's what it does. Idolatry robs us from seeking the righteousness of Christ and his kingdom. It robs you of that. And pretty soon you're now thinking of your own self-righteousness and your own kingdom. That's what it does, doesn't it? I mean, I just want you to think this morning. Think hard with me. Think about these things in your life. Think about the last argument you had with somebody where you were upset, where you, where you battled for your own will. Think about that. That's what happened. You were fighting for your own kingdom at that moment and your own self-righteousness. That's what happens. See, idolatry robs our Christ-centeredness, doesn't it? That's a theme around here. We love Christ-centeredness. It means Lord, you're, you're, you're everything. You're, 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 you're in the center of everything we do and everything goes in that our marriage, our children, our worship, our church, our, our businesses, our occupations, our gifts, everything is in that. Christ is the center of all those things. We love that. We talk about it. We believe that here, don't we? But idolatry, it robs Christ-centeredness. 
And it redirects our attention to self. And, and, it, doesn't, and it doesn't say there. It also, idolatry actually takes others with us because we want people to believe what we believe. So we affect our spouses, we affect our children, we affect those around us. See, idolatry doesn't like to worship by itself. It likes a lot, doesn't it? And the more I can get, then I feel more justified. Paul knows this is going on in the Corinth church. See, the things that we worship besides God, listen to this, they can't forgive your sins, they can't save you, they can't give you a peace that passes all understanding, and they have little to do with solving the problems. God has all that. God has forgiveness. God has peace. All through Jesus Christ, and he can solve your problems or give you the faith and patience to wait. Idolatry can't give you that. And so when our loves pursue even good things, wealth, education, society, when that becomes idolatry, it robs us of our trust in God. See, these made man, man man-made idols, they work their way into our hearts. I thought long and hard about this. I'm in this series, boy, I'm telling you, it's working on me as much as it's working on you. I spend 20 hours in this text. I had to get up and walk out of my office a couple times to think through how, how serious the words of Paul are here on my own life. Because it worms its way into your heart. It causes harm. And I think what, what it does worse is that for a moment, maybe just for a moment, but maybe long term for some, it defiles your correct view of God. You can't have a correct view of God and slide an idol in front of it. It's going to change it, isn't it? And so Paul says, run. Run. It's the first part of this. Run. See, I think he's teaching what Jesus taught. Luke 13, 16, 13, you cannot serve two masters. You'll either hate one and love the other, or else you will be devoted to one and you will despise the other. Jesus said that. He said it multiple times. That's strong, isn't it? What do you love? What do you hate? What do you serve? Well, Paul now is going to give four clear illustrations to prove the sinfulness that's trying to share, trying to share fellowship with God, with Christ. He's going to show that. And he's going to show that you can't have fellowship with Christ in the world, true koinonia. He's going to show that. He's going to use the example of believers, excuse me, believers' communion here, the Lord's table. He's going to use the nation of Israel and their fellowship with God and, and how that showed oneness. But then he's going to show the demonic activity or the demonic attachment to idolatry to help us realize what's really behind our idolatry. And then he's going to show it's an absolute rejection of God's character if we stay in it. So let's look at our second thought this morning. Number two, the finished work of Christ is incomparable with the world's idolatry. So now he turns to the example of believers' communion. Look at verses 16 and 17. Is not the cup of blessing which we bless as sharing in the blood of Christ... Is not the bread which we break a sharing in the body of Christ? Since there is one bread, we who are many are one body, for we are all partakers of one bread. Well, these verses here, Paul has kind of, in a sense, reversed the communion order to make 
us point, to drive his point home. And that is you cannot share in the cup of the blessing of God and then he's going to go to the body of Christ and have fellowship with Christ and the world together. In chapter 11, we'll see him correct the order. But notice the first part of verse 16, this phrase, the cup of blessing. It's an interesting term. Most likely, it referred to the last cup at a meal. And there it was Jewish custom to drink that last cup at a meal and give thanks at the end of all is done at the end of that meal was to give thanks at the end of that meal for God for his provision. First Timothy 4 says that we should thank the Lord before we eat our meal, but I think that's a great idea at the end. Have any of us ever finished a meal and says, you know, we just need to stop and say, God, thank you for that really good meal. So that was, that was a tradition that was in the Jewish customs, and was called the cup of blessing. It also has maybe a reference to the third cup that was drank during the Passover feast. And it is possible Jesus was referring to this, signifying his crucifixion and his death and bloodshed for those who would believe. But wherever the name of this cup come from, the disciples made this cup a special reminder of thanksgiving so that whenever believers partake in the Lord's table... They did it in remembrance of the Lord. And the present tense language helps us understand that this is something that regularly occurs with faithful Christians. I believe we're doing it next Sunday. And so they knew the command. But the table is a, it's a beautiful reminder of the oneness we have with Christ. That's, that's what the table is. We don't take the table to gain something. We don't take the table because, oh boy, I hope I'm right with God. No, no, no. The table reminds us of our oneness with God. And this is the idea here. Communion with our God and Savior also flows into our oneness with each other. The table gives us a moment to reflect of our perfect position with, with God through Jesus Christ and how we are in this triune love of God and then we're also in fellowship with one another. That's what communion does. It teaches us oneness. The word share there you see in the Bible, or maybe your translation says participation, is the word koinia. We translate it several ways depending on the context, but it literally means to have something in common, to participate or be in partnership with. It's often translated in our Bibles as fellowship, the word fellowship. And from it, and we see the scriptures speak about our fellowship with God, our fellowship with Christ and his suffering, our relationship to the Spirit of God, and certainly our participation, our fellowship with one another. It's a very important word. And when we say, listen, when we say we have koinonia, with one another, it's a statement of profound significance. It means that God bought us with his son's blood and put you and I in an eternal relationship with him. It is not to be taken lightly that you belong to a fellowship of believers. This is why we talk about membership around here. You throw your hat in, you said, I'm with a triune God and I'm with you. That's what we do. That's what the church is about this, on this earth. And so the term should kindle up deep affections of love and compassion, deep desires for God and for each other. And so he's using this. Idols can't do that. Idols don't cause that, right? They actually hinder all those things. So he's sharing this word 
fellowship, deep fellowship with God and one another in order to help us realize the finished work of the Lord Jesus Christ that we may not adulterate or idolatry against that. He's saying, look, you're in this oneness. Why would you want to bring in idolistic behavior? And it's a responsibility, listen to this, it's a responsibility of each and every one of us because we're all one body here. We do not want to bring idolatry through our own personal lives into this. And so we, we confess our sins, don't we? To a God who is faithful and just to forgive us of all of our unrighteousness, right? Because that's, that's the body of Christ. And we're patient and kind and love one another. And this grace of God, by the grace of God, listen, we participate in such a beautiful, intimate fellowship with Jesus and one another. And so we should take care of these things, shouldn't we? And yet... We don't. And sometimes it takes someone coming to you or coming to me and saying, hey, brother, I love you. <laughs> Can I help you with the struggle you're in? And, and maybe they don't want to listen, and so you take, a, you take somebody else and, and, and you try to warn them and you try to help them because sin's got them blinded. And the Bible says, Jesus' own words, church discipline is about restoring a fallen brother or sister. And so you gather the entire church together and you say, come on, we don't want to lose you. Idolatry is going to ruin everything you have. Repent. This is the goal, isn't it? Notice, this blood of Jesus is an interesting term. I think it simply means it represents the death of Jesus Christ. When we talk about the blood of Jesus Christ, it isn't this miraculous human blood that he had within him. It's speaking of his suffering. It's speaking of the great things he went through for us. It reminds us that he physically died and removed our sins. And we, by, listen, by no means are drinking in the blood of Jesus when we take communion. Salvation has always been by faith and not by what? Works. And so there's a great fallacy there. Salvation has come to us through Christ alone, by faith alone, through grace alone. Jesus is the final lamb, the final sacrifice the final blood shed for us to satisfy a holy God forever. Notice in verse 16, end of verse 16, he says, in the, is not the bread which we break a sharing, koinia, in the body of Christ? Well, clearly the bread represents the body of Christ just like the blood, uh, the cup represented or was symbolized in this blood. But one very important aspect that we celebrate the Lord's table is we're declaring when we hold that bread in our hands that our Lord Jesus Christ added humanity to his deity. And then that is such an important thing. You've heard me say this many times in this pulpit, you can't kill God. So God took on human flesh, dressed himself in humanity so he could die for you and I. And when we're at communion, we remind ourselves that Jesus humbled himself, became a servant, became a man. He humbled himself to the point of death, even to the death of the cross. And we are reminded that he became incarnate so he could die as a human sacrifice for those who know they deserve death. That's, that's who he died for. And the Bible is clear that the body of Jesus wasn't broken. And when we see when Jesus breaks the bread for his disciples, he's doing that. He's giving that to them 
to remind them that through his death, you'll have new life. That's what he did. Because when we get to Jesus on the cross, not a bone is broken, right, to fulfill the scriptures. But the disciples and we too break bread to give it to one another to remind us that Jesus' death gave us life. And we like our communion around here, don't we? It encourages us. I hope it does. We preach our way right into it. And you'll see that this next week. Well, the Bible is clear that the Lord's table is a worshipful experience, isn't it? We don't take this bread and this juice because we're having some transformative type of action taking place, like we're getting the body or the blood. I I was reading on this a little bit this week, and there are those who believe this, and they, they, they moved away from that to probably almost another dangerous thing. They believe that the Spirit of Christ is hovering around the elements, and each time you take it, it teaches that Christ dies again for you. Thinking, you got to be nuts. What, is Christ's death that weak? That it has to be repeated over and over? The writer of Hebrews said this, 9.28, so Christ also having offered once. <laughs> that's, the, that's the greatness of his death. His death washed back over all the sins in the past and washes all the sins in the future for all that will believe in him. That's what he does for us. And that's the mark of a Christian, right? We believe that Christ died bodily in our place. He shed his blood for our forgiveness once and for all. And this causes us, as the verse goes on to say, to eagerly await his return. Look at verse 17. I've got to keep moving here. Since there is one bread, we who are many are one body, for we all partake of one bread. I have an affinity towards conjunctions. (laughs) Notice since in four, they start the first half of verse 17, and four since, and then four starts the second half. These conjunctions here are reinforcing truth. They're stressing something here, and what the stress is on, that we eat of one bread. So Paul's reminding the Corinth church that you were converted, Gentiles, pagans, some were Jews, they came to Christ through faith alone. These two groups have formed one body of believers, who Paul says, we who were many, notice that in the verse, are one body. Christ's finished work on the cross breaks down all these racial barriers, calls us into one body, and we eat one bread. So you can't offer something else. See, idolatry has no room in the Christian walk because you rob the one bread. You rob him of his efficiency in our life. And like the Corinthians, we all took part of that bread of heaven, didn't we, right? That time of salvation, you believe that Jesus was enough. He satisfied you eternally. You put your faith in him, and you're reminded every time we have a communion service that Jesus was enough. He was the bread of life. And every time you take that one bread, you represent that your faith is in that Jesus came here bodily, died for you, took away your sins, and he unified you with Christ and God and the Spirit and with one another. We do that every time we take communion. And so Paul says, what are you doing? Don't let idols in here. And I thought of this week. The good way to fight idols is vertical worship with horizontal impact. Worship vertically. 
Keep your eyes pressed on Christ, looking for that upward calling, always going there, and it'll affect us horizontally. Just think if all of us did that. If we, we left this room today and we kept our worship vertically, guess how that would affect every one of us horizontally? See, that's what the Lord's after in our life. So here in the context, Paul's stressing the fact that believers are one body, so how can Christianity and paganism mix? And I think this is where the rubber meets the road, doesn't it? Lord, I'm a Christian. But if I ask my neighbors what they think about me or my coworkers, do they see a Christian or do they see a pagan? Hard questions, huh? I'd apologize to one of my neighbors this week. <laughs> Said something off the cuff that probably was took wrongly. And probably because it came out of my heart that way. I went to his house last night and said, will you forgive me? See, it's always there, isn't it? There's always our self fighting for supremacy, isn't it? It's fighting for it. And so Paul says this, there's just no room. Just look at communion. Just look at the table. Look, look how this brings us one with the Lord, how it reminds our, us of our relationship that we have with him and each other. How can we let this in? James says it this way, if you're friends with the world, you're not friends with God. Pretty hard-hitting, isn't it? Third thought, idolatry removed Israel's fellowship with God. Look at verse 18. Look at the nation of Israel. Are not those who eat sacrifices sharers, coineers <laughs> in, the, in the altar? Well, here Paul is exhorting the Corinthians to look back at the sinfulness of Israel. He's just taken all these verses, um, 1 through 10, to show them the warnings and examples. And so Paul's argument is designed to help the Corinthians and for us to see the deceptive difference between fellowshipping in the dining of pagan things, pagan temples, pagan life, and the celebration of the Lord's table. And he says, are not those who eat the sacrificers sharers in the altar? Well, every Jew that heard this would have said, hmm, yep, that's rhetorical. Doubtlessly, we are. Because they knew that Paul was describing that the priest and the people of Israel who presented offerings to the Lord did so in fellowship with him. And they could prove it because as we studied just recently through the uh, book of Leviticus on Wednesday night, we realized that some of that sacrifice was consumed by fire. Some of it was eaten by the priest. The other portion was eaten by the people who offered it all on the temple grounds in the presence of the Lord. And so now he brings this study of Israel into this to realize, look at what they were doing. As they sacrificed, they did it in the presence of God. There was a fellowship with them. There was a koinonia between God, the priesthood, we have a high priest now that's greater. But you could see the form and what it was pointing towards in the Old Testament. They had unique fellowship. And what did they do? They broke that fellowship and worshiped gods that were not the God of the universe. And they gave it up. And so you also must think of the negative side of this verse. Aaron built an altar and announced the next day there was going to be worship and feasting around this idol. And in Exodus 32, the next day, they rose up and they offered burnt offerings and brought peace offerings. And the people sat down to eat and drink and rose up. And so the nation joined themselves in the onefulness of sinful worship of the idol. And so Paul brings that in. What are you going to do with that? Oh, we would never have done that. 
and yet my mind 24-7 is consumed with things that are not of God. Right? And so he's serious about this, isn't he? He's trying to help these people. And look, when we look back at the story in Exodus 32, the intercessor, Moses, steps in for God would have destroyed all of them. The intercessor, intercessor, uh, intercessor Moses, who's a type of, of pointing towards Christ, steps in and protects them from the wrath of God, destroying them all. All pointing towards Jesus and us, isn't it? And so Paul says, look, remove idolatry if you want the sweet fellowship with God. You're one, and you're one with what you worship. That's who you're identified in. So Christian and pagans, we can't participate in the same worship. And and again, going well, I'm not going to some sacrificing of some idol to idols somewhere, but what, I, I say this, I often ask my children this, or I ask myself this, or let me ask you this. What do you love that the world loves? Ooh, I know. I I had to go through this myself this week. What do you love that the world loves? Now, that does not mean you're not in the world, by God's grace, producing a living, going through, breathing in and out, living in this world. That's not what we're talking about. We are in the world, but we're not what? Of it. So, what do you love, love, Love that the world loves. That's what Paul's after. And that's what robs us of worship. That's what robs us of joy. That's what robs us of of moving and and being discipled and, and growing in the grace and knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ and being transformed into his image. That's the problem. Next example, number four. There can be no harmony between demonic attachment to idolatry and the pure worship of the Lord's table. Look at verse 19 with me. What do I mean then? That a thing sacrificed to idols is anything or that an idol is anything? Well, this verse just flows from the preceding verse which showed the the rebellion and the idolatry of Israel and what they did to the oneness that they had with God And Paul's now asking the Corinthians to consider this sinful episode of Israel's history and learn from it. So in verse 19, he's inquiring of them whether they understand that the food, the offering of food to idols is vain and worthless. And of course, the answer to both those questions in verse 19 is negative. No, notice the word is at the beginning of verse 20. No. So the food sacrificed is meaningless, and so is the the idol that is made of wood and stone, those things are meaningless in and of themselves. The problem lies within the sin of worshiping the idol, worshiping the things that want the, the, the throne of our heart, and, and subscribing to their beliefs that, that we've joined in some kind of oneness with them. That's where the problem is. And again, let me say this, the meat offered to the idol had no spiritual power, nor does the physical idol. But Paul is saying they both are worthless. They're empty, spiritually speaking. The real trouble begins when what Christians were doing was attached to demonic behavior. Oh, now we get to the other side of the coin. Satan is behind idolatry. That's the clear thought here. Look at verse 20. Notice what he does here. No, but I say that the things which the 
Gentiles or pagan, your, your translation may say, pagan sacrifices, they sacrifice, uh-oh, to demons and not to God. And I do not want you to become sharers in demons. Oh, no, he just used the word koinia with the word demons. This is getting really serious, isn't it? In fact, you don't have to be a mathematician to understand he uses demons four times in these, in these couple of verses. Twice in this verse, twice in the next verse to indicate that Paul is stressing the incompatibility of worship of the things of the world and the things of God. And that there's demonic backing behind those things. And so, uh, although the idols and the meat are vain and worthless, Paul is saying, see, that, see what's behind this. It's Satan and his forces. There's never been a true God behind these things. I've been all over the world. I've I've actually seen them. I've seen gods in in the Philippines. I've seen gods in India. I've seen gods in in Spain. (laughs) Uh, Images, right? Mariolatry. I mean, you see this stuff everywhere. There's, There's no God in those. Those things are not real. And yet... There is a spiritual force that is very real behind them, Paul's saying. And he, look, he's saying, how can you go play with that and then come in here and take the table? So clearly our Father in heaven, he's trying to protect us, right? He's trying to say, love the things of the world. You don't have the love of the Father, First John, right? He's trying to protect us of these things. This does not mean that demons are not powerful, brothers and sisters. But listen, their power is limited, and they center on deception. And listen, I'd say this. You want to mess with sin, you're going to get Satan's world. He does not live in the world of the righteousness of God. He lives in the world of sin. And him and his forces work overtime. You can find it. You can trail it in all kinds of things. Pornography doesn't just stay at looking at an image. It moves. It trails. It has a demonic trail. The worship of people doesn't just stay at that one person. It goes on to the next person and the next person. The worship of money just doesn't stay there. It's something more. i got to have more. It has a trail. And every one of those trails is leading us away from Christ, not to him. And you know it's demonic. Because every demonic being does not want you to go to Jesus. That is their whole goal. That's why they invaded the world in such high rate during the life of Jesus Christ. They did not want people to go to a Savior. And that's what idolatry can do to us. Instead of trusting and getting on your knees and pleading for God for mercy, you just work harder, don't you? Because my work ethic is my idolatry. Isn't it? See, we fail to go to God. Remember, look, Satan's crafty, right? 2 Corinthians 4, 3 through 4 says this, and even if our gospel is veiled, it's veiling to those who are perishing. So make sure you understand this. The gospel is veiled to those who are dying in their sins. In whose case the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbeliever. The God of this world's goal is to blind the eyes of unbelieving. And so it attracts you to the shiny things, trying to distract the unbeliever so that, and here's a very important so that, they won't see the light of the glory of Christ. That's the goal. And, and I know that's talking about the lost, but look, idol worship does that to us. When I get entranced with something that's not from God, that's not good for me, my eyes go off of Christ and they go on to hit that. What are your eyes on today? Let me remind you, look, Satan is not omniscient, he's not omnipresent, or is he omnipotent? 
And with 7 billion people on this world, I doubt he's visited you. And let me make sure that I'm not saying Satan makes you do it. Our flesh doesn't need a whole lot of help, does it? But if you want to mess with the things that the world loves, you're going to find demonic stuff behind that. And that's the problem. There's this word, this phrase, he says, become sharers in demons. Most of the theologians believe this is probably taken from Deuteronomy 32, the Song of Moses. In his final chapters, he's warning the nation. He tells them what's going to happen in the future. And 32, 15 through 18, in Deuteronomy, Moses writes this, but Jeshua, another name for Israel, grew fat and, and kicked. You grew fat and thick and sleek. Then he forsake, forsook God who made him. He scorned the rock of his salvation. They made him jealous with strange gods. With abominations, they provoked him to anger. They sacrificed to demons who were not God, to gods whom they have not known, new gods who had come lately, whom their fathers did not dread. You neglected the rock who begot you and forgot the God who gave you birth. Oh, I read that. I said, oh, Lord, we still fall into that, don't we? We let things come in that rob us from the understanding of the rock of our salvation. And so idols... They worshipped were not God, but they were real. There's a demonic, demonic attraction behind that, aren't they? And I think that happens today. Look, um, some of the things that go on out there and in the charismatic world and people who have neglected the word of God and think that the Spirit's speaking above it and they're getting new revelations and they're doing all these crazy things. Look, I promise you, <laughs> that's not a God. That's not a God. And it's flat dangerous what they're doing and Satan's veiling the truth. But it isn't just crazy stuff like that, right? Paul says in 1 Timothy chapter 4, 1 through 3, but the Spirit explicitly says that in latter days there will become those who fall from the faith, paying attention to deceitful spirits and the doctrines of demons. Okay, what is that, Paul? By means of hypocrisy of liars searing their own conscience with a brand iron. So what are these men going to do? They're going to forbid marriage. Whoa. Let me go on. Advocate abstaining from foods which God has created to be gratefully shared. The Corinthians were already involved in celibacy to try to prove their own godliness. And so we begin to realize that they, they live a life of denial or, or they change terms in order to affect their own personal theology of God. And the Bible says this is doctrines of demons. And the, the, the marriage movement, the rejection of God's plan for the family is right out of the pit of hell. Period, brothers and sisters. And I know that's hard because some of you may have children and loved ones. We have people in our family who are caught up in this. But I promise you, just read this text. It's of the doctrine of demons. And it's deadly. And that doesn't mean we don't love these people and show kindness to them and be merciful. But we preach the truth in love. Begging God to change their heart. Look at verse 21. You cannot drink the cup of the Lord and the cup of demons. You cannot partake in the table of the Lord and the table of demons. See, the warnings and examples are done now, right? This is a matter-of-fact statement. This is black and white. There's no ifs, ands, or buts in this verse 21. Is there? Look at it. You cannot mix them. He's dead serious, isn't he? 
He knows where it's going to take the church, what it's going to do. So Paul is now supporting Jesus' statement, you can't serve two masters. You're going to hate one and love the other, or you're going to despise one and hold to the other one. And this is what happens often with even moralistic people who, who think they're Christians, who can no longer cling to their faith, which they actually never had. They eventually, their true worship comes out of them. They don't find joy in Jesus. They're attracted to the things of the world and their, expa- their faith is exposed as being of their own and false and it leaves them empty. And they die. This is why Jesus said, you are your father, speaking to the Pharisees, he was the father of murders. See, that's the goal, murder faith. That's what the goal is. And so, Satan comes and Adam and Eve in the garden and he murders their view of God, doesn't he? And what happens? Their son murders their other son. He's the father of murders, isn't he? There's a trail there. I'm sure the Pharisees didn't really appreciate that comment, but it was true. And so Paul's crystal clear here. Look, you can't Mix the cup of the Lord and the cup of demons. You cannot partake, have fellowship with the table of the Lord and the table of demons. Where are the idols coming? God in idolatry is oil and water. It's Fords and Chevys, man. They're not coming together. It's just not going to happen. Fifth and last, and i got to cruise here quickly. Five, idolatry is a rejection of God's character. Look at verse 22. Or, or do we provoke the Lord to jealousy? We are not stronger than he, are we? See, idolatry exposed that, that believers' communion is broken, right? It's not true if they've allowed the world's views and they cling to that. You can't have both because the communion, the Lord's table, shows us that we're one with God, one with each other. And he, he proved that through Israel's fellowship. They brought in false gods and broke fellowship with God. He, he shows the demonic attachment to idolatry. He's, he's shown now the rejection of God's character. And in verse 22, he starts to say, look, idolatry provokes a righteous God. Man, this will wake you up, won't it? The last thing I want to do is provoke God. You've heard the saying, don't poke the saying, don't poke the bear. That's nothing compared to this. It provokes him. And I fear for people right now who are trying to twist scripture and trying to bring around their own views of gender and marriage and whatever else they're trying to push onto the church. There is a God who is jealous for his church and for his ways. And he's perfect in all that he does. Don't provoke him. See, God has a holy jealousy, and he deals with competitors. He will. He's holy. And look, if you're saved, he's going to discipline you. Does not want competition for his glory. And brothers and sisters, he will discipline us because he loves us. But if you're not saved here and you're hearing this message... And your faith is not in the finished work of Jesus Christ alone. He gets provoked and uncomes eternal punishment. Revelations chapter 21, 6 to 8. This is the way the book almost finishes out. He said then to me, John speaking as 
Spirit of God is revealing all this truth. He says, it's done. I'm the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. I will give to the one who thirsts from the springs of life without cost. What beautiful teaching of salvation. He is overcome, will inherit these things. All of, the Bible is talking about this new heavens, this new earth, all this, this kingdom that he's brought down now. I will be his God and he will be my son. But, conjunction, for the cowardly, Coward is referring to those who will not stand up for what God says. To the cowardly, to the unbelieving, to the abominable, to the murderers, uh, to the immoral persons, the sorcerers, the idolaters, and all liars, their part will be in the lake that burns with fire and brimstone. This is the second death. See, idolatry rejects the character of God. It rejects the holiness of God. So Paul ends this, and this is where we're going to end. Are you stronger than God? You think you are? Great question to end with. Well, I can, I can have my relationship with the world, and I can have my relationship with God. Are you stronger than God? Your opinion's better? You got your own inspired book somewhere? See, that's a rhetorical question, isn't it? James says it this way. Chapter 4, verse 12, there is only one lawgiver and judge, and the one, him, who is able to save and to destroy. See, there's no one stronger. And when we're caught into idolatry, we foolishly think that we're more powerful than God in that moment. How many, when you were young, in your dating relationship, thought you could just go up to the line and say, oh, I'm going to be okay. And now that we're married, we have another line somewhere. And another line, and another line, because you think you're stronger than God, you think you can get through this stuff. And nothing ends well when we do that. And you think, just look, in the moment when we're in temptation and we let idolatry get our mind and our heart, we're swept away in that moment. The last thing we're thinking about when we want our will pushed, when we're going to stand for our thoughts, when we're going to stand on that very, very shaky molehill that we're standing on, we are not thinking of an omnipotent God at that moment, are we? But Paul says, you better remind yourself you're not stronger than him. You need him. And so God is jealous of our submission, brothers and sisters. Are you submitting to him and his word? Are you submitting and obeying him? Are you being discipled and making disciples? Are you following him? That's, see, that's, that shows that you're in submission to him. If not, if not, you're up against the omnipotent God. Father, thank you for this reminder. It is weighty. Often, Lord, as I open my Bible and begin to prepare the next set of verses, Lord, I can become overwhelmed in my own life. These things are not light. And Lord, I think for many of us, it's really easy for us to look and say, oh, this is the Corinthians and this is their problem. And yet, Lord, I think the word has challenged us that idolatry is near our hearts. It just sneaks in, Lord. Lord, we've got to have short accounts. We've got to examine. We've got to be growing in the grace and knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ because pretty soon there's something else in the throne room. And we don't enjoy the Lord's table. We don't enjoy the preaching of God's word and the singing. We don't enjoy fellowship with Christians. 
Pretty soon that all just goes away because we're not redeemed or at least maybe acting like we're not. And so, Lord, please help us to deal with our idols. We're one with you. We're one with one another, Lord. May we see the preciousness of our relationship that is eternal. May that motivate us to deal with sin in our lives. Thank you for your grace and kindness to us, God. You're always drawing us back to a right relationship with you. You forgive us of our sins. You've forgiven all of them, and you are a just God. Cause us to lean upon you and learn. In Jesus' name, amen.